You're listening to a podcast by Church on the Move in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Hey, wherever or however you're listening to this, our hope is that this message is encouraging, it's challenging, and it inspires you to take your next step with Jesus. Thanks for listening, and let's check it out. Well, this is one of the most important lessons in all of our teaching about money, and some of you may think, well, this is totally inappropriate. It really isn't a lot about money, but it is. I want to talk to you about steps and stages. In the margin of my Bible, uh, in Genesis 12, 9, it says this, And Abraham journeyed, traveling by easy stages. Uh, Another place says he was going on still toward the south, but literally it means he traveled by easy stages. If you're going to learn God's money system, one of the most important things of your training is to learn how God leads, and He leads in steps and stages. Listen to the book of uh, Psalms, chapter 37, verse 23. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Here's a companion verse, Proverbs 16, 9. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Now, ordered and direct are the same word in Hebrew. So uh, there's a double repetition here. Steps and steps in both verses, order and direct, same word. And the idea is that God doesn't lead us forward in these huge, massive jumps and leaps forward. He leads us forward a step at a time. And what this is designed to do is it's designed to prevent you from falling into anxiety. And anxiety is the enemy of God's financial system because it creates worry. And when you worry, it's inevitable. You're going to compromise. You're going to be pressured into doing things you shouldn't do. You will not only take steps that may not be moral, but you'll also take steps that may not be sound. They're just not wise. They're not prudent. And so God is trying to lead us one step at a time so that every time we put out a foot, we're landing in a good place. Now, nobody, nobody had a greater assignment on earth than Jesus. I was talking to my wife this morning, and I asked her the question, who had the greatest assignment? And it was Jesus. And yet Jesus, with this amazingly important assignment, did not get out of step in fulfilling it, even though the salvation of the whole world was at stake. And you might think that he needed to hurry up and get this done. After all, it's important. And that's kind of how we think. We think that important things, really important things, have to be done very quickly. But I want to turn you to the story of Jesus in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, start with verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. After the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth, but Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't miss him at first because they assumed he was with friends among the other travelers. But when he didn't show up that evening, they started to look for him. Among their relatives and friends, and uh, when they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him there. Three days later, they finally discovered him. He was in the temple, sitting among the religious teachers, discussing the deep questions with them. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. His parents didn't know what to think. Son, his mother said, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic, searching for you everywhere. But why did you need to search? Jesus came back. 
He said, you should have known that I would be in my father's house. But they didn't understand what he meant. Then he returned to Nazareth with them, was obedient to them, and his mother stored all these things in her heart. So Jesus grew both in height and in wisdom, and he was loved by God and loved by all who knew him. Now, just as Jesus had been circumcised on the eighth day and presented to the Lord in the temple, he also followed another tradition. He came and presented himself, or he was presented by his parents, to the Lord when he was 12 years old to go through his bar mitzvah. And and, uh, young men in the Jewish faith still do that today. And so uh, Jesus was there in Jerusalem, but he sat down and began to discuss the law of God with the leading scholars of the day. And, and the way this is worded and the way our, our commentators talk about this, they say that Jesus was not there to learn from them, but the questions he was asking them were questions designed to teach. That's a very uh, big part of the way uh, uh, Jewish thought is taught and conveyed. And the study of the law is done with asking questions. And that's why you see Jesus asking lots of questions and other people coming to him and asking questions. It's a way of communicating. And the idea here is, is that Jesus had superior knowledge to everybody who was sitting in the temple. Now that's amazing, isn't it? Here he is as a 12-year-old boy. And he's already smarter than the leading religious teachers of the whole country. Now, it would seem then, if that's the case, if he's already smarter than the leading religious teachers of the day, why doesn't he just go right there into an amazing ministry? He doesn't. In fact, he goes back to Nazareth and for 18 more years, and we call these the silent years because there's nothing written about them. For 18 more years, he goes back to Nazareth and is obedient to his parents. And the Bible says that he grows in wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and man. Now, Jesus might have personally been ready, but there were numbers of other things that were not ready. For instance, John the Baptist wasn't ready. And in order for Jesus to fulfill his ministry, he has to have a John the Baptist because the prophets declared that the Messiah would be heralded by a friend of the bridegroom, that someone would go before him and and say certain things. And all of this was prophesied, so the Word of God couldn't be broken. So I find this fascinating. As important a job as Jesus had, he still did not skip a single step. Not a single step. He went through every part of the process. And he came to the age of manhood where a a priest was then allowed to stand in a place of ministry. He didn't cut any corners. He would not have been received in spite of his wisdom. He would not have been received as a youth. But as a mature man at the age of 30, he was in a perfect position to begin his ministry. So no steps skipped here. Learn to see value in every step that you take. See, a lot of people don't see value in their steps and stages. Uh, David is a kid who was in a dead-end job keeping his father's sheep. Now, that's the way everybody else saw it. His older brother saw it that way. And he ridiculed David for having this job of keeping a few sheep, not only uh, a few sheep, but not even his sheep, a few of his father's sheep in the wilderness. But David did not see that as a dead-end job. David understood that the smaller steps that he took 
we're going to enable him to play on a big stage someday, that nothing is really small, that every small assignment is a big assignment. We're learning something. We're developing an attitude. We're coming to a place of belief. We're building faith. We're preparing ourselves when we deal with small things. And a lot of people look down on small things. When I started in children's ministry, I could feel it. When I would get, now my church appreciated me and the people in our church, they loved me because I taught their children and they always respected me. But when I got outside our church family and got around other people, I could tell they had very little regard for me because I taught children. I could feel that. It was very strong. And I was determined not to let that stop me. And that's one of the reasons God called me to children's ministry is because he knew that I would treat it with great care, that I would love it, that I would uh, do something special with it. And it's what he used to help me develop a, a national ministry. It's because I had a great esteem for what seemed to be a very small thing. But David did not see this as a dead end. And so when he stands in front of King Saul, just before he goes to God, listen, listen to what he says. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. I'm proud of it. Small job. He's about to go fight a giant, and he, and he doesn't start talking big. Well, you know, I've, I, I've been a, a stud. I've been in some pretty big battles. He didn't say that. He said, I used to keep my father's sheep. He made that a part of his story. And he said, when a lion and a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it, and I delivered the lamb from its mouth. I'm not, I am not too proud to say I cleaned a lot of toilets in my early days of ministry. I vacuumed a lot of church carpet. I picked up a lot of gum wrappers. I, I swept a lot of floors. I did lots of cleaning in my early days of ministry, and I'm not the least bit ashamed of it. And I treated it like it was great stuff, that it was a big deal, because it was a big deal. If I can't do that well, then I won't do the big things well. And that's how God leads. I knew that. I learned it from David. I watched it in the Bible. And so David said, when the lion came and arose against me, I caught it by its beard. I struck it and killed it. Then he says to the king, your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, and he keeps repeating this, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Wow. David said, I went through steps and stages. And the steps and stages that I went through brought me to a place of readiness for this moment. You know, we're not born with right attitudes now, many of us had great parents, and we had great teachers and instructors, and so we have a little bit of a leg up on the average person. But even then, we needed to be trained. We needed to have new attitudes shaped. And what I want you to understand is the experiences of life under God's watchful eye, when you're a believer and you're submitted to God's plan, God will guide you through experiences. Not everything is pleasant. But he will be there with you in all of it. And those, those experiences can shape the things that you need to have in your heart.
You know, when I was a very young man, I was so idealistic. I believed you could fix anybody with kindness. I didn't guard myself. I didn't protect myself. I did not understand that there were some people that were dangerous that you just had to be wary of. I didn't know that. I thought you could just, if you're just kind to anybody, you can, you can turn anybody around. And that doesn't mean we're supposed to be mean and hateful to people, but I'll give you a great example. One night after our youth service, this 16, 17-year-old high school kid from another town came up to me. He'd been invited to our church that night, and he came to our youth service, and he was a guitar player, but he didn't have much of a guitar. And he begged me, he begged me and pleaded with me to let him take my 12-string guitar home. I should have known better. He said, I will be back here next Saturday night. And I'm thinking, well, this will be a thing that will get him back in our youth meeting next Saturday night. So I let him take the guitar. Next Saturday night, he doesn't show up. The next Saturday night, he doesn't show up. So I get a hold of the people that brought him to church from that other town. They don't know anything about him. They just went out and picked him up and got him to church that night. And so uh, anyway, a couple of weeks pass. And so I go down to that town and go way out in the country. I'm 35, 40 miles away from our town. And I find the farmhouse where he lived, and it looks deserted. Front door standing open, there's no furniture there. And my heart is just dropping to the bottom of my stomach. I mean, I, I, I feel so bad. I know this isn't going to come to a good end. And I walk into the back bedroom, and there under an old steel bed frame with those old steel iron springs, there is the guitar case. And I'm like, oh, it's going to be okay. And I pull out the case, open it up, and my guitar has been stomped to bits. Why would anybody do that? Now, I'm going to tell you something. That taught me a lesson. It taught me that you don't give precious things to people that are untrustworthy. God doesn't do that. God doesn't call an evil person to become the pastor of a church. In fact, Paul tells Timothy, if anyone is going to be a church leader, they have to have a certain set of qualifications. What does that say? It says that God doesn't trust just anybody with sacred things. And I learned that with a negative experience. You learn through taking steps. The things that God leads you through are designed by God to change your thinking, to improve your thinking, to open your eyes. Because listen, money is a people matter as much as it's a God matter. And a lot of people think that all I have to do is learn how God works and, and my money problems will be solved. But money flows through the hands of people. If you can't deal with people, if you don't know people, if you don't understand people, if you don't know how to deal equitably with people, you cannot have money. You won't be able to hold money. You won't be able to use it wisely. So God takes you through a series of steps in your life to help you to develop healthy attitudes about money. The steps of a good man, Proverbs, or Psalms 37, 23 say this, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Now, I read the first part of that later, but didn't uh, earlier. I didn't read the, the, the second part, and he delights in his way. Now, the second part of the verse is huge because it says, when you are a good man and your steps are ordered of the Lord... You're not waiting for the destination. You're enjoying the journey, and you're seeing value in the journey. See, a lot of people see no value in the journey. 
They're so fixed on getting to the end. I want to get that car. I want to get that house. I'm not going to be happy till I get that thing. And life is full of people. They're all around you who are continually postponing their happiness. They're postponing their joy. They have a certain thing in mind that they want to get to, and until they get to that thing or that place or that, that, uh, it, 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 that destination, they're absolutely miserable. And the danger in all of that is you take all of your joy and satisfaction from a thing, not from God. God wants to lead you, and he is leading you as much through the process as he is getting you to the destination. Do you love desserts? I don't love every kind of dessert. My, my wife is a chocolate freak, and I mean, if, she absolutely loves chocolate. And I suppose it's pretty good for me because I don't like chocolate that much, and so a lot of her desserts are chocolate, and that keeps me from raiding the fridge too much. But I'll tell you about a dessert. It, 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 the thing about a dessert is it's not just a process or a product of the ingredients. Uh, you, you know, you, you read the recipe and you see eggs and flour and a little bit of this, sugar, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and uh, chocolate perhaps, and you, you see all these different things. Well, you just take those things and pour them all into a bowl and see if you get a great dessert. No, you don't. All you have is ingredients. As much a part of making a dessert as the ingredients themselves is the process that you go through to make the dessert. It's the whipping. I, <laughs> I made bread one time right after I got out of high school because we learned how to make it in our family living class. I made one, and under the supervision of our teacher, I made a great loaf of bread. But I decided I wanted some more of that bread when, when I was uh, uh, two or three years removed from that. And I, I didn't melt the butter. I just, just kind of chopped it all up and put it in my mix. And, and it, this was the lumpiest piece of bread you ever made. I mean, it had no texture to it at all. It was awful. It tasted nothing like what I did before. Why? Because I skipped the process. I had the ingredients. In fact, I even called my old teacher, and she gave me all of the ingredients. But what I didn't do is follow all the steps. The process is as important as the ingredient. Now, if I could go back to myself, and I have young pastors ask me this from time to time, what would you say to a younger Willie George? If you could go back and talk to yourself, here's what I would say. I would say enjoy the journey. Enjoy every little step. You know, there were times when our church was just getting going, and I needed $50,000. We had a big thing coming, and I, I needed fifty grand. And we presented the challenge to the church, and people gave sacrificially. And, and, and there were little couples who gave, I mean, money that they just really didn't have. And they brought it, and they worshiped God and gave it to the church, and it was amazing. But at the end of the day, I, I, I might have had $5,000. And I was so upset at the missing $45,000. I was so upset at what I didn't get that I couldn't be grateful for what I did have. And there were people who sacrificed greatly to give me that smaller amount of money. Can I tell you that every single time we eventually met the goal, God never failed me. We always got what we needed. Not always as quickly as I would have wanted, but we always got it. But if I could go back, I would say, chill. It's going to be okay. 
we're believing God. We want to see so many new families come, but we get maybe a tenth or a, a half of, of the new families we're after. And you can be so bummed about what you didn't have that you don't enjoy what you do have. And that's what God is calling us to, is learning how to enjoy the processes. And when you don't enjoy the processes, you're going to skip steps. I have to ask this question, what about the leap of faith? You know, I, I marvel how much I hear that term in Christian circles. You have to just take the leap of faith. It's just a leap of faith. Can I tell you, that term does not appear in your Bible. It isn't anywhere in your Bible. And it's totally foreign to all of the teaching in the Bible. There is no such thing as a leap of faith. There's a step of faith, but never does God call us to take a leap of faith. I want to show you who does ask you to take a leap of faith. Luke 4, 9. Then he, Satan, brought him, Jesus, to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. That is a leap, but it's not a leap of faith. It's a leap of presumption. What Satan was trying to do was say to Jesus, take a shortcut. And this is why worry and anxiety are so dangerous is because they push you to shortcuts. Let me read what happens. Wealth from get-rich-quick schemes. And that doesn't mean you won't from time to time get a lot of money because you took a shortcut. But it quickly disappears. Wealth from hard work grows. God's money system does not lead into shortcuts. Drove by a house the other day, not far from where I live, and it had been foreclosed on. And the guy who lived in this house made a lot of money for a good long while, but he had a shady little practice. He had this habit of sending invoices for not a whole lot of money, but he sent them to dozens and hundreds of companies, $49 here and there, knowing that if it was a small amount, that a lot of the companies wouldn't question it, they would go ahead and pay. And they were fabricated invoices. He made a lot of money that way. Eventually, he lost everything. He lost his home. Wealth gotten by get-rich-quick schemes, it doesn't last. You may get ahead for a short period of time, but it won't last. Now, we look in the Bible and we think, but there are a lot of guys in the Bible who just went, look at Joseph. Joseph went from the dungeon to the palace in no time. Oh, that's not true. Joseph was not an overnight millionaire. He spent 13 years without a wage before he became Pharaoh's prime minister. And when he did get the job, he did not get his job as Pharaoh's prime minister. He didn't get it because he was lucky. He got it because he had developed the qualities that that job demanded. See, this notion that somehow God just touched Pharaoh's heart and all of a sudden Joseph gets promoted, mm -mm, that isn't what happened. Joseph had to be developed. Had Joseph not been developed, had this happened first year or two, when he got to Egypt, he couldn't have handled it. It took 13 years for Joseph to take steps, to go through stages, to get to a place to be able to handle everything that he was going to have to handle in this process. 
And when he did interpret the dreams that Pharaoh had, and keep in mind, these were not Joseph's dreams, they're Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh knows that whatever happened to him, what came in his dream, he knows this is a warning from God, but he doesn't know what it means. So Joseph interprets the dreams correctly, but he not only interprets the dreams, and not only does he tell Pharaoh, this is what's going to happen, but he gives him a plan. This is what you need to do to be able to handle all of this. And listen to what Scripture says, Genesis 41, 37, and 38. Joseph's suggestions were well received by Pharaoh and his advisors. I mean, these are people who run a country. And they're not a bunch of bumbling fools. They know something about management. And as they discussed who should be appointed for the job, Pharaoh said, who could do it better than Joseph? They had the ability to recognize from the things that he said, he knows what he's talking about. God doesn't take us from nothing to something great overnight. One of the greatest things that I ever learned, and I got it when I first came to Tulsa, uh, there was a big push in those days for every preacher to get an airplane, and, and, and our pastor had a plane. We had a plane at one time, and it was perfect for us to have a plane because I had a huge crew, and we had to fly a lot of people to all of our meetings, and I was able to crisscross the country, and, and actually the plane gave me one whole month a year at home because I was able to get back from meetings uh, late at night instead of having to wait for a commercial flight the next day. So the plane worked out great for us. We could never have done Gospel Bill. I could never have built Drygulch USA without that plane. plane was a great tool for us. Now, today, plane doesn't work for me. Uh, I, I can't justify it. It doesn't make sense, so we don't have a plane. But in those days, we had one, and it made sense. Now, one of my friends, a pastor, was talking about planes. He said, a lot of you guys are wanting a plane. He said, do you know what you want? He said, you know, he said, just because you have a plane doesn't mean you'll be able to keep it. He said, because planes are expensive. And in order to keep flying a plane, you have to keep up your maintenance. You cannot afford to let your plane go. Listen, when your car messes up, you may be able to pull over on the shoulder and, and call for a wrecker. You may run out of gas. You, you, you may have some little thing go wrong. <laughs> That's okay with a car. But with a plane, you don't pull over on a cloud. That plane has to work perfectly. And I know people who died because they cut corners in their maintenance and their planes didn't work. It's one thing to have a plane. It's another thing altogether to be able to take care of it. And so just because you get to a position doesn't mean you can stay there. Joseph might have gotten to a position, but he had the ability to stay there. And the steps are designed to give you the ability to stay. God's leadings and his money plans are all about longevity. It's not just about getting something. How many times have we seen people who made a fortune? How many athletes have we seen who had multi-million dollar contracts and yet three or four years after their retirement, they're busted broke. They have nothing because they didn't understand how money works. They may have gotten a lot, but they didn't know how to keep it. God wants to bring us to a place where we not only are blessed financially, but we know how to keep what it is that he gives to us. Proverbs 28.20, listen to this one. The trustworthy will get a rich reward, 
but the person who wants to get rich quick will only get into trouble. So when you fall into anxiety and you cut corners, you will always come to trouble. Some people have this way of thinking. But Pastor Willie, you're talking about what ordinary people do. I am a person of faith. Oh, yeah? Well, faith is not a means of confessing your way to riches. In fact, the Bible says the talk of the lips tends only to penury, poverty. If all you do is talk, you won't get anywhere. It's the hand of the diligent that brings wealth. It's not just the talk. And some people think that if I just confess enough scripture and stand on enough promises, money's going to come my way and I don't have to go through all those other things. Oh, yes, you will. And even if you do have some temporary success, and by the way, some of the people that I've seen who rose to the top, or so it seemed, who had great success, great wealth, they were preachers. And they fell and fell very quickly. And they did not maintain what it was that they had. They lost it all. Why? Because they didn't take the necessary steps to learn the value of all of God's thinking along the way. And so when they got to the top, they couldn't stay. They did not know how to keep it. Anxiety is not a productive part of any of God's processes. You know, when we opened up this series in week one, I opened the whole teaching with the Gospel of Matthew, the sixth chapter where Jesus begins this teaching, do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon this earth where moth and rust do corrupt and so forth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. I brought out to you that Jesus was doing this typical thing that God does. He never creates a vacuum by telling you not to do a particular thing without also adding to it a positive thing. I tell you that there were two trees in the middle of the Garden of Eden. There was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everybody knows that. But most people don't realize that right next to it was the tree of life. Adam should have eaten from the tree of life. He didn't, but he ate the wrong tree. And so God never just says, don't do this, without following it up with a do this instead. Hugely important idea. And so in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is laying out the don't when he says, don't worry. And there's a counter to the worry. Now let's read it. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. Matthew 6, 25. What you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather in the barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? Now, people miss the significance of the comparisons here and what Jesus was teaching. He's saying, look at the birds. They, they don't sow, they don't reap, they can't gather in the barns. He said, but God cares for them. He cares for you much more than them. Are you not of more value than them? Well, the idea that many people take away from this is that, uh, well, we're bigger and we're on a higher plane than the birds, and so God takes care of us. That's not what God's saying, and that's not what Jesus meant. What Jesus meant here is he said, 
God has a plan for every one of his creatures. For birds, for instance, he feeds them. He has a system of feeding the birds. But it is not a system of farming. The birds can't plant and they can't reap a crop and they have no storehouses. Now, on the other hand, the contrast is back toward us. We can sow seeds. We can reap a harvest and we can have a storehouse. And this is Jesus' way of saying, this is how you are going to free yourself from anxiety. I'm telling you to do this to keep yourself from falling into anxiety. God knows that we, we, we can't just sit around with an empty uh, mind with no thoughts. We have to fill our minds with the right thoughts. And the right thought is, I've got to be sowing. Sowing is giving to the kingdom of God. But it's not only that, it's giving to your career. Sowing work. Wherever you go, you make an investment. I am. I start with what do I have to be a blessing to the world? I get up in the morning, not with how am I going to get money, but I get up in the morning with what do I have to be a blessing to other people? I'm sowing. I'm sowing my whole life into the people around me. And that's how we're supposed to think. We're not thinking as takers. We're thinking as givers. I'm a sower. And he said, they don't sow, and therefore they can't reap because they don't sow. And then he identifies this. He said, you should be able to gather into barns, meaning you're going to take more back in than what you need to use at the moment, which means you have a storehouse. And so God is telling us that there is an answer to worry. You don't have to fall into worry because when you fall into anxiety, you're not going to get anywhere. And then he asks this question, which of you by worry can add one step or cubit to his age? I've read that verse many, many times and, and I thought it doesn't make sense. Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit to his stature? And a cubit is 15 inches by one measurement, 18 by another. Uh, so, or 18 inches, maybe 21, but it doesn't really matter. But, but what I want you to see is it's more than a tiny little fracture, a fraction. And he says, which of you, by worrying, can add? Well, certainly nobody grows like this. Nobody grows this much. And if Jesus was talking about physical growth, he would say, which of you, by worrying, can add an eighth of an inch to your height? That's what he would have said. But when he said, which of you by worry can add one cubit to his age? The word stature here is also translated to age. And he's saying, which of you can put one more step onto the end of your life? That's what he's saying. He said, you cannot put one more, a cubit is about a step. Which of you can add one more step to your life? You can. He's saying worry will not get you what you're looking for. You see, God's system of taking steps is designed to keep you out of worry. And so much of the time we focus on the physical, the physical act of taking a step. But let me tell you how God sees this. The steps of a righteous man are ordered of the Lord. A man's heart devises his way, but the Lord directs his steps. What, what's the difference between a step and a leap? 
Well, somebody says a, a leap is, is just jumping big and going forward. Well, not necessarily. I was watching this Ken Burns documentary on America's National Parks, and they show old, old photos of early tourists before we had safeguards and we had sense enough not to do this, and, 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 and we have handrails now where you're not supposed to do this at the Grand Canyon. But there were people out there on these rocks with their feet in the air, one foot in the air, like they were about to step off this rock at the Grand Canyon. It's ridiculous. And I don't even want to see that picture. It gives me the heebie-jeebies. But that's a leap. And move back 30 yards, and it's a step. The difference between a step and a leap is not just what the human being does with his leg and foot. It's the ground that's underneath your foot. And what God does is he prepares solid things for you to walk into, not empty things. So a leap is not just some quick rush over the edge. Uh, a leap is putting your foot down where there's nothing. And people ask me all the time, how do I know if I'm following God? I ask this question, is God leading you in steps? And when you do take a step, is there something solid under your foot? When you take a step and there's something solid under your foot, you can't get hurt. This is God's safeguard. This is what keeps me from losing everything I have. I take a step, and if there's nothing solid under my feet, I stop. One of the bankers that we've banked with down through the years made this statement about me, and he said, this is why we love doing business with Willie George, and this is why we trust him. And this is why we would loan money to him. It is because he never gets in over his head. And if he gets into something and it doesn't work, he cuts bait and doesn't try to prove that it's right. Wow. You see, I've learned that if God's leading you, you take a step, there's going to be something solid there. Years ago, I launched an adult television show. I thought I was called to adult TV. I'd had great success as Gospel Bill. I thought, well, this will translate over to older people. And so I started doing this nationwide television program. You may never have heard of it, and that's probably most of you never did. And it didn't take off. We had no results. One week, I was sitting in a staff meeting, and I asked our partner services director, how many people responded to this week's offer? And she was so sweet. She didn't have the heart to hurt my feelings. And so she, she just grinned. And I said, come on, I'm a big boy. And she didn't want to embarrass me in front of the rest of our team. I said, I don't care. If it's bad news, go ahead and tell me. And she held up her hand like this, zero. I was on in multiple cities across America, and not one person, not one person, not one person responded to our show that week. I said, you know, that is a supernatural lack of response. I'm better than that. <laughs> and I realized God's not blessing this. And at the same time, at the very same moment, I was also involved in our youth ministry. We called it 180. And I realized that I was going to have to give up one or the other 
We didn't have the money to maintain the TV outreach and the youth outreach at the same time. And what I saw, the hand of God was on the youth outreach. Our youth group doubled and tripled, and more and more kids were coming, and I could see the fruit of it. Well, hands down, I know this is God. This is a step. I put my foot down. There's something here. I'm going to keep walking, and we canceled all of our TV stuff. Was it embarrassing? Yes, because I talked big about it for a while. Do I have to eat some humble pie? Yes, but you know what? Pride will keep you from blessing. If you're too proud to admit you took a wrong turn, you're going to get lost. And so God leads us in steps, and one of the biggest components of his financial plan is that you follow him one step at a time and trust him to lead you into his goodness. Thanks for listening to the Church on the Move podcast. You can stay connected with us at churchonthemove.com or by following us on Instagram. Our mission at Church on the Move is simple. We want to introduce people to the real Jesus by helping them know God, grow in freedom, discover purpose, and go make a difference in their communities. If you're in the Tulsa area, we would love to have you join us at any of our campuses this weekend. You can check out churchonthemove.com for campus locations and times. We hope to see you soon.